0: When Ajahn Chah used to give Dhamma talks sometimes he would address the listeners as seekers of truth because this is what we are coming to practice Dhamma taking ordination in the Buddhist, Buddhist Buddha-sasana. Our aim is to seek truth, penetrate truth, penetrate the four noble truths that the Buddha realized and used as his basis for describing suffering and its cause and the way out of suffering. You'll notice the life of the Buddha or any of his disciples in the time of the Buddha or in more recent years. Their practice seems to be a bit like a quest Seeking truth, they're on a quest, a spiritual journey. And as long as they haven't completely understood, penetrated to the truth, haven't freed their hearts from suffering, then that quest is not over. Sometimes it's a physical quest of actually moving, traveling, But more importantly it's an inner quest, searching to understand the truth about the way things are from our own experience and internalizing the Dhamma, coming to understand with our hearts and minds. part of the practice is about breaking through delusions, coming to understand things more deeply and see things differently from perhaps how we have in the past. Because often our thinking and the way we look at the world is coming from ignorance and delusion, whether we realize it or not. So we're learning how to see through delusions, deluded perceptions, wrong views, misunderstandings about truth, so that we can bring our minds in line with Dhamma. So we're training ourselves to do that through our practice putting the minds, our minds in a position where they're able to investigate truth and do it well. And to keep doing it, it's not very usual that one investigates the truth briefly and then everything is realized. Most practitioners, it's a continuous practice, maybe over many, many years, even lifetimes. But we keep that goal in mind as we practice. We're seekers of truth. You notice in the course of the practice in the development of continuous mindfulness states of samadhi which are very much part of the practice but they take considerable effort and maybe it will take a long time to really become skilled in the development of samadhi. But often where we can see quick results and significant changes in our experience is through the development of wisdom. The development of wisdom also supports the development of samadhi. But sometimes we can see it's a shortcut, cutting right through to the the Dhamma. And we can bring our minds to develop wisdom by training in skillful reflection, wise reflection on our experience, listening to Dhamma and then reflecting on it. That's something we can all do but it still takes training, being willing to turn the mind to the Dhamma and reflect. And obviously as mindfulness improves and the mind becomes more refined, more peaceful, the clarity of Samadhi, these support wisdom. But at any time in our practice, we're always able to turn the mind to reflect, contemplate its own experience contemplate the things around us. Sometimes it means taking a second look or just looking longer, more deeply at our experience, not just taking it at face value. Questioning things, looking more deeply at our preconceived ideas and notions about the world, about ourselves about what is good and bad, right and wrong. Because our background is in ignorance and delusion, which conditions craving, which conditions attachment, that's our background. So we should assume there's bound to be different ideas we hold Views, expectations, desires which are not grounded in wisdom and are most likely to bring us suffering if we're not aware. So we have to be prepared to take a second look and look more deeply and question our own thoughts and perceptions on things. When the mind's conditioned by craving, then we tend to always be expecting and hoping for different results from our activities in life. We're always looking for the object of craving to satisfy the mind. So we're expecting certain experiences, people, places, things to bring us the happiness, the satisfaction that we want. As we know, craving is that kind of agitating experience for the mind, insatiable, the hunger of the mind. As long as we're following craving, giving in to craving, the mind is never going to be happy or settled in itself. If we can start to recognize that point and recognize craving for what it is, then at least we're starting in the right place, even if we can't yet give up our craving. So a lot of the development of wisdom, wise reflection in our practice, we're learning to look at craving as it arises and what it does to the mind. Craving for the objects of the senses, craving for lasting experiences of happiness, craving to get rid of unpleasant experiences. Over and over again we can see the experience of craving arising in our heart on a daily basis just as the mind drops into different moods, desires, planning, Wanting things, expecting things. Or falling into dissatisfaction with the experiences we have. Even if at the time craving ar- arises, we can't yet catch it. If we start to train in wisely reflecting back on our own mind, sooner or later we can follow up on the craving that has arisen and get some idea what it's done to us, what it's done to the mind and how it's conditioning more craving, more attachment. So much of our practice is based around this, just establishing mindfulness in daily life through following the Vinaya and reflecting on the use of the requisites, using the techniques of mindfulness living in the monastery Just to establish enough awareness to see the mind and see craving at work. Obviously it's uh, an energy, a force which is often quite hard to restrain. So there's some tension, some friction involved with that. Often craving conditions, more craving. so you recognize some craving Maybe recognize that you've given into craving and a different kind of craving arises as we judge ourselves for having given into craving. We become unhappy because of that. On and on it goes. So the Buddha referred to it as like a river that's never ending. Or sometimes we get some temporary satisfaction in our practice or in our life but then quickly the satisfaction fades and we're back with craving again. So even getting the objects of craving won't really quench its thirst. So we have to keep training our minds to look back at themselves and understand more what is causing agitation and suffering and stress. Start to recognize craving for what it is is the cause of suffering and working to abandon it. Sometimes just by bringing up enough mindfulness just to know it for what it is is enough to undermine it. Other times we have to work very, very hard, be very patient, energetic, diligent to work with it. The use of wisdom, wise reflection can often help to ease the tension and hasten the victory over craving. We're looking more deeply at things, different attachments we have, different delusions we have, which may be feeding craving. Just not willing to take every thought for what it is and follow it and believe it, every mood, every desire, to keep bringing up that quality of questioning things, questioning the appearance of things, the conventional reality that surrounds us and that we're caught up in. So whatever part of your human being you look at, body or mind, or the five candors, Jan Chah said, look at it and you'll see every, every aspect of the canvas is like a ball of red-hot iron. Red-hot all over. And maybe we can't see that because sometimes our mindfulness and insight isn't refined enough, isn't quick enough. But we can still take it as a point of reflection looking and learning to see whether that whether it's true or not the questioning why would Ajahn Chah call all five candas like a red ball of hot iron meaning wherever you touch you'll get burned whatever you your mind grasps at in the five candas it will suffer wherever the attaching the grasping arises it will lead to suffering So at the very least, if you're you're working with a red ball hot of iron, then it brings up a sense of caution, heedfulness, that sort of state of mind where you're not quick to rush to conclusions that this is good or the best or what I want. This will bring me real peace and happiness. Whatever the experience is, there's always going to be a bit of caution, doesn't it? Is there some of the red hot iron here? in the way we come to see the true nature of the Kandas body and mind keep using the reflection on Anicca, dukkha Anatta and questioning how permanent our experiences are how permanent the world is material world the mental world how permanent are feelings, perceptions and thoughts are how reliable they are how stable they are, how satisfactory they are, and ultimately whether there's a self in any of them or not. Keep questioning the outward appearance of our daily experience, and noticing an dukkha Anatta more and more, more clearly. You might say this is wisdom generating Samadhi leading the mind to be a little bit more detached, letting go of the normal effects of craving in its experience, little by little becoming more peaceful because of it. I remember when I was a kid, one of the first times I realized how deluded we get about the world. When I was five years old, we used to regularly stay in the Welsh countryside, where I spend a lot of time on a farm, dairy farm, sheep farm and being I remember the first few times I went there it was like a new place to discover and the my friends and my family members, all the kids would often be playing out in the farm play games like hide-and-seek and this dairy farm had many many cows So, where every morning evening when they're milking there'd be a lot of cow dung and the farmer would push it all into a pile out in the yard next to a big shed up against a wall and over the weeks and months ended up with a mountain of cow dung. I remember one of my first memories is in this game of hide and seek, rushing to find a place to hide and wanting to hide in the roof of the shed. The only way out was what, to run over what I thought was a nice solid pile of cow dung. It looked just like earth. I knew it was cow dung, but it wasn't smelly because it was all... had a dry crust on top it was out in the fresh air so I thought I can just run up that get to the roof of the building I wanted to get to to hide I didn't have much time so I put one foot in just broke the crust it was quite a thick crust but then it started to go in and I realized underneath was just soft mushy excrement so I quickly pulled back I was really shocked, not because of the smell or the excrement. That was quite easy to wipe off my shoe. It's just how deluding the appearance had been. It looked like a very solid pile of cow dung, just like earth, that could easily, you could just run all over if you wanted to. But it wasn't. Inside was completely soft. that stuck with me just as a warning about how many things in life are not what they seem. Buddha said approach the five kandhas in this way and don't just take them for what they are, what they seem. Don't take your thoughts for what they seem to be, your feelings, your body and so on. So over time we're so familiar with our own candors, we're so used to them, that we just take them for granted, believe in them, follow them, accept them for the way they are, and you might say part of our wrong view is we just think, well, this is the way it is. We have five candors, and these five candors constantly affecting me, making me this way, making me that way. We often feel This is the way it's got to be. There's no other way it could be. In a way delusion presents itself, it's deluding. The only way we can liberate ourselves is to keep looking, questioning, so that we can understand things better, change our perceptions. We have to be willing to go against the stream of our own desires and attachments and delusions not just follow along with them all the time so the development of wisdom is quite tiring we're using our brain power our intelligence we're not just following with the flow of craving which at first seems the comfortable easy way to go we have to be willing to stop that habit go against that habit And the practice of Dhamma Vinaya is f- facilitating that and that's why often there's a lot of tension at first as we're learning to get used to it. So whether it's just the external rules and practices or the internal training of the mind in mindfulness and wise reflection we're constantly going against craving and attachment and what we're used to, what we're familiar with. So it's very tiring bringing out wisdom. And you'll notice that in the course of practice, you do a lot of wise reflection, uses out mental energy to the point where you don't want to contemplate anymore, just want to go back to quietness. Which is why we also develop Samatha as a support for insight. And it's this practice of looking beneath the surface of what might apparently seem solid and stable and good and right. And what seems to be part of a self, belonging to a self, the same as a self. We have to start looking more closely, establishing mindfulness, Reflecting wisely, is this really me? Is this really good, right? Is this really, by grasping in this way, holding on this way, is this the real way to peace and happiness or is it actually leading to more suffering, more agitation, confusion? We're learning to do that, training in wise reflection training to get under the surface of things. This is why when we practice contemplation of the body, it's really looking more deeply, investigating inwardly, more deeply than we would normally do. Literally getting under the skin. That's why we refer to the skin It's just like a, a sealed bag, keeping the rest of the body in place. We have to practice getting under the skin, becoming familiar what it's like under the skin, smelly, repulsive, blood and guts, bones and flesh, organs and so on, to keep looking more closely at that perception to get more clear and more clear idea of this body as it is going through the 32 parts, backwards, forwards, up and down, in and out. As they say, to get sometimes to the point where the repulsive nature of the body is very, very strong, to actually feel nauseous, it's quite likely in the course of body contemplation will become nauseous just through our own efforts Pointing wisdom to look at the true nature of this body. How it smells, how it looks repulsive. How it ages, it changes. Just to get very familiar with that practice. Bringing attention back to the body over and over again. Wisely reflecting. Wisely reflecting on our food. Over and over again however alluring the smell and the taste is, the color of it, to keep coming back to what it's like when it gets into our stomach, or when we poo it out. Over and over again, looking at the true nature of this body, getting under the surface, everything that comes into contact with our body becomes unpleasant smelly, greasy, dirty. You multiply, once you become clear with that, you multiply that by all the people in your life that you meet, it's just endless multiples of the unpleasantness of this body. There's no human being can be be any different. We're all made of the same elements. Those elements are unsatisfactory and unstable constantly subject to degeneration and change. So you're becoming more and more familiar with the unattractiveness of a human body through this kind of wise reflection over and over again. This is what changes the perception, gets under the surface of our normal infatuation with the world around us, people and things of the world, places. is naturally bringing the mind, drawing the mind inwards. The mind becomes more familiar with one-pointedness and then wise reflection rather than always going the way of craving and attachment. Of course, at first, when we practice like this, we contemplate it would just seem like another thought, another idea coming into the mind, the mind picks up and drops, doesn't hold on to it very long, doesn't go in deep, doesn't seem to make much difference to anything. So that's where regular practice keep returning to these reflections over and over again builds up little by little brings up new perceptions new understandings we have to be willing to give it time and keep practicing but to ease that and even maybe even speed it up we have to really train in wisdom really become familiar with our object. Familiar with the body as it is, the parts of the body. Familiar with looking at things in a more objective way, detached way. Becoming more used to it. Picking up on the impermanence of things. The instability of things. The lack of ownership in our experience. Keep noticing that, little by little, this is what brings clearer understanding. And then if over time our states of samadhi deepen, we become wiser. The mind is more used to just letting go. And one day maybe when the mind becomes one-pointed, it's easy, clear for the mind just to accept that these five khandhas are not self. As long as we follow desire then we'll be taken on a merry dance around the world through our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, through all our ideas and expectations and so on It just lead endlessly around the world always looking, moving, looking, wanting, searching. Doesn't lead to peace, doesn't lead to clarity and understanding. often it's, we turn our, once we get used to the practice and we turn our attention to the the bhikkhu life, still craving can be affecting us, so wanting to move around, adjust things, change things, move to different monasteries, try different techniques of meditation, listen to different teachers, wanting different experiences, maybe go off on our own, all of that may bring some useful experience in the practice but we also have to notice how craving and attachment can still come in even to, into our practice of the Vinaya and the practice of Dhamma, the decisions we make and so on. I remember when I was about six reigns been spending many, many months attending on Ajahn Chah. I was very tired. Being, living in close proximity with other monks. And we had to deal with all the views and opinions about how to look after Ajahn Chah, deal with all the lay visitors coming, and so on. I was getting a bit tired. I thought, time for a, a retreat. Go off on Tudong, a long way from big monastery, somewhere quiet. I went down south, south, southern Thailand, just one other bhikkhu, just to stay in a bit of forest where there's no monastery, it's just a bit of forest where they had invited monks to come. And the place was quite suitable for practice. There was enough food and the weather was okay. The forest was quiet all the conditions seemed quite conducive, and they were. But practicing through the Vasa, I could also see there's still the craving, it's just this desire to get away from sometimes, desire to get towards maybe the perfect place or a better place, or away from certain conditions that we don't like, don't want. I could see that little by little through the Vasa even though practicing diligently in the practice was going quite well I could see underlying there's still this just this desire to get away from everything, move on, go towards something better, away from something worse Because see in the end you've really just got to let go of that as well doesn't mean to say you can't travel or move to different places but you have to catch the underlying desire that's often the moving force in that. Be willing to stop the mind, let go of that kind of desire, and say, well, whatever the conditions are, wherever I am, the place of practice is always inside, it's not outside. That's the important point. It's inside, that's the important point. In our minds, there's the place of practice. You'll never find perfect conditions outside, You have to learn to establish a good way of practice inside, learn to quieten the mind and then reflect on the Dhamma, little by little. When you see through craving, then it changes, at least some of your perceptions change. You're no longer a slave to that particular kind of craving, the one pushing on to find somewhere better or get away from what you don't like you have some inner strength and enough clarity to catch that particular kind of craving maybe still there's plenty of other more deeply ingrained kinds of craving we just have to work with whatever's coming up whatever's affecting us and try and recognize it see the futility of following it and bring the attention back to developing the practice inside. The so, Sina, you know, the Samadhi, the Panya, put the effort in there rather than following craving, which is always going to delude us. We think something is other than it is. We think something is better than it is, worse than it is, other than it is. In the end, everything is just the way it is. And there's no need to add craving or attachment onto our experiences, even the body is just the way it is, isn't it, it's neither, we don't have to be for or against it, we don't have to be obsessed with it, we don't have to be allured by it or hating it, it's just the way it is and we know it with the mind, this is just the way it is. It's not something to be grasped at, taken as permanent, permanent self. So if we keep practicing, keep bringing up this wise reflection that we train in, listening to dhamma, internalizing it, reflecting on it over and over again even if we find meditation very difficult our mind is not settling down not peaceful we can still bring up wisdom apply wisdom use that wisdom to our advantage and keep bringing the reflections that the Buddha gave us and our teachers have given us keep using them working with them looking more closely, looking more carefully. As the Buddha said, in the end, the Dhamma is just upturning something that was previously face down, now facing, bringing it to face upwards so you can see the true nature of it. It's not anything very far away. It's just adjusting the way we relate to our own experience. Not just falling into our same old wrong views and attachments, but pausing enough to question and look more carefully and just slightly adjust things so that the way we see things is in as dhamma rather than just craving an attachment. So I'll leave you with those reflections tonight.